Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. My name is Mario Veen. This is episode 28, Health Professions Education with Lara Farpio. In this interdisciplinary philosophy podcast, I interview experts about their interpretation of Plato's allegory of the cave. The purpose of this is to explore what it means to examine life, or the part that interests you, from an interdisciplinary perspective. There are fields that are already inherently interdisciplinary, and today we will look at one such field, medical education or health professions education. Whether you are interested in or familiar with medical education or not, I hope this episode interests you because it is a case study of interdisciplinarity, and particularly the way it requires philosophy, in this case philosophy of science. And I have just the right guide for us to lead us through medical education and through Plato's cave. Dr. Lara Varpio is Professor of Pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Philadelphia and the Co-Director of Research in Medical Education at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She started these positions in 2022 after serving for nine years at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. And Lara's research investigates how individuals collaborate and perform in teams and organizations. She's interested in how individuals can shape larger groups and how groups shape individuals. Lara uses qualitative methodologies and methods, integrated with theories from the social sciences and humanities, so very interdisciplinary. Her most recent work is related to, on the one hand, interprofessional care teams, and on the other hand, health professions education scholarship units and scholars. You know how it works, you're a podcast professional already, so... I don't know about professional, but I can surely <laughs> screw it up one way or the other. <laughs> You know, it's so funny because uh, when we do our recordings, we do it at night, right? And we do it late and all those sorts of things for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being that I've got three clinicians that I work with, right? So on, on that podcast, so getting the, getting their clinical schedules to align is a little bit like it kind of requires an act of God or you decide you're going to do it in the middle of the night. So we do it in the middle of the night. Somehow in the back of my brain, podcast has become a middle of the night activity. So anytime I've had the pleasure of doing this during waking normal human being hours like I'm doing with you I always have this sort of um alternate universe moment at some point during the conversation where I'll be like wait a minute why aren't the kids in bed or, or like, <laughs> you still have your whole day ahead of you now. right again I, I hang up and I'm like oh we're done and no we're not <laughs> that's all we talked uh, quite a few times before but I mm -hmm. don't think I really know how you ended up in medical education because I think someone with your skills and talent, you could work in many fields, but why medical education? Uh, thanks for that compliment, Mario. I appreciate that you think I could work in many fields. Honestly, my my father thought when I went to university with a to do my PhD in English, he used to tease me every holidays. He's like, so have you started interviewing at Starbucks yet? Because he really thought <laughs> that I truly wouldn't find anything yeah. uh, that would suit my, that that would that my degree would naturally lend to. And really, it my, my degree doesn't naturally lend itself to medical education. But uh, I can tell you how I ended up here. So I was doing my PhD in English at a university in Canada, not a very big university, a middle, mid to 
smaller side university. And uh, I was having the best time as a graduate student or as a, as a university student, but I really did start to recognize that I enjoyed English at the bachelor's level. Um, but at the graduate level, it wasn't working for me. It wasn't, it was too abstract. It was too far removed from actually making a difference in the world. I felt like, man, what am I going to, you know, my dad's voice was resonating in my ears. What am I going to do with this other than spell things correctly at the Starbucks? Right. So I, um, I, I told this to my supervisor at the time at my PhD supervisor, her name was Catherine Schreier. I couldn't say enough nice things about this woman. She was so selfless. Uh, and that's one of the models I've always tried to adhere to this idea of uh, it's more important to support people uh, than to worry about supporting your own career. And uh, I told him like, listen, Kathy, I'm, I'm going to quit. I, I can't do this. Um, we were doing, I was doing one of my last grad courses and it was about the great American novel. And we were reading Moby Dick and I thought it was awful. Like I, I didn't care. <laughs> I was... <laughs> <laughs> the book or the course? The book. The course was the best part because we chatted. But yeah. the book, I was like, man, you know, like, okay, I can understand why it has canonical status as a part of the canon. I get that. But man, it's a lot of talk about whales. Like, really, at the end of the day, <laughs> it's it's not a page turner until you get to the movie, which is how I read the book. I watched the movie. Gregory Peck version, just saying, if you're going to watch the movie, right, watch the right one. But um, I told her, I'm like, listen, I can't, I, this is this, I'm... I'm being disrespectful to the degree by engaging in it in this kind of way. And she's like, well, you know, why don't we look farther afield in terms of topics for your thesis and think less about text as novel poetry, those sorts of things, and think about text as a form of communication that people use. And so I started thinking about um um, you know, things like electronic or online writing labs, where um, there was this whole set of materials that were just coming out. Because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little older. Um, but at that time, things were just coming out about uh, to teach grammar and language resources to people who had English as a second language. And it was this whole new platform of teaching that was not in person, that was virtual, that was not at the same time, it was asynchronous. It was like, so these were options. And then she's like, well, why don't I introduce you to this woman I met? She's pretty fantastic. You're going to like her. Her name's Lorelai Lingard. Oh, and, I know that name. Right? Yeah. And so Lorelai is a, a really well-known name in our field of medical education. She's just an excellent researcher. And, um, you know, the, the, the way I, the, the joke of it is that they invited me over to Toronto um, at the Wilson Center uh, for Research and Medical Education. They invited me over for a three-day visit. I left three years later because I had found my space. Like I had found a space where I could do something where I was... Uh, my research and my ideas and my skills actually applied to something that mattered. And I started looking at electronic health records at the, the, the way, cause charts were at that time, just moving from paper-based to electronic. And we're not top, like, this is not when Epic was really a big uh, electronic health record format. Um, and with the beautiful uh, graphic user interfaces that we know now, like the chart that I was looking at the, that my hospital was using at the time, was black screen, green text. It was, you know, way back in the early days. So I was having this great experience working with her and realized that medical education was a space where I could take a look at the way people engaged with each other 
through language in a way that affected, had real, physical, tangible, palpable impact on people. And so for me, that was it. Once I, once I'd found that space, I did my, my PhD thesis was on the electronic health record at a hospital, looking at the way errors, we could track errors through the document, the way people took the information from the record and changed it completely in a structural format on a piece of paper, because it didn't look the way they needed it to look. The nurses created these timed charts with little check boxes of what needed to be done at what time. And the physicians took all the information off the electronic health record and turned it into what do I need to be thinking about? What are the criteria? What are the tests I need? And time was not a factor. in So those they were doing that kind of informally? That was not part of the original system? Correct. It was informal. Ah, okay. It was a workaround. So, I so was you, you, you had this official system and you were studying the workarounds. How do they actually use that in, in practice? And, exactly. And nurses yeah. need uh, a time-based record, but uh, other physicians need different kind of information. Right. And so it was this little window into the way people were thinking, this little window into what mattered to them. And about, you know, for me, one of the things that was fascinating about it was this little window into how individuals push against a system. I was wicked turned on by that idea. I was like, oh, you know, individuals pushing against a larger social structure, an ideology, a context, a social expectation can affect change. Because the next time they bought a, because of course, you know, they don't use an electronic health record anymore. That's a black screen with green text. They have this beautiful graphic user interface now. But when they purchased that, the findings from my research were on the table as part of what they needed to make sure they enabled. And I was like, oh my God, like that's, isn't that the ultimate moment of success for a researcher? That the work that you're doing actually enables or improves life or product or whatever it is you care about, but you have a tangible improvement in reality. Ah, I was sold. I had the bug. Now I needed to be a researcher for the rest <laughs> of my life because I wanted to do that every day. I wanted that feeling every day. Well, that's great. It's kind of, uh, yeah. So you kind of accidentally wound up in that environment coming from English, being interested in language going to more into the teaching direction and then a medical context which uh yeah probably was not your intention before none whatsoever no. well you, the part so if my dad once upon a time used to tease me about where i would get a job uh, i just recently moved uh to a new university so i'm working for uh, an ivy league university the university of pennsylvania and one of the best biggest children's hospital in uh, children's pediatric hospitals in america the children's hospital of philadelphia and uh my dad to this day like literally just a few weeks ago we had this conversation he's like do they know what you do like do they do, do they understand that you have a p nobody comes to you for medical advice right i'm like dad they know what kind of pa doctor i am you're like a doctor, they, <laughs> but not one that helps people. That's not how, one of those people. Yeah, right. None of those useful ones, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's always like, "But have you received a paycheck?" I'm like, "Yes, Dad. They know why. It's a legit world." So no, this was no way, shape, and form a part of my trajectory. But you know, Mario, you and I both have kids, and I think it's one of those things where, once upon a time, not that very long ago, uh, parents, family members could understand the kind of work you did because the jobs existed when they were in the job markets or, or mm -hmm. participating as well. I think for people like you and I, I can't even imagine the kinds of jobs my kids will have because the world has shifted so much. My son's interested in, in designing video games right now. I know nothing about video games. Like I literally started playing with him so I could have something as a point of reference just to understand what this means to him. Like there are jobs that exist that I never could have imagined 
And I think that's one of the things that we have to deal with in our very quickly changing and evolving society that we don't know what's going to happen next. Exactly. Yeah. And it, but even even before it's already, if I look at myself, I didn't know the job I'm doing now existed. And probably when you were studying uh, English, you didn't know that kind of job existed. Correct. But apparently that's, I mean, I'm sure you could do other things as well, but apparently this is a good fit for you. So how do you find out? And, and so much of the education system is focused on that you know even if you're 11 12 or 13 you have to already know what job you want to do but but if you don't know it exists how can you uh, right? choose for that so and i think that's awful so one of the things i tell my my kids is uh, and you know take it for what it is it's an end of one but you know how some people say figure out what your passion is part of me feels that that's an awful piece of advice cuz i didn't know this was my passion until i was yeah. in my 20s right so tell me to go find my passion that's just nasty because who knows? Yeah, your passion is, I think it's something, it lights you up and you, you find out, you, you lose all sense of time and everything. Right, but yeah. It's, Do you know it's that a when bit you're like, 12? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a bit like falling in love, you know, you don't know in advance that it's going to happen and suddenly, whoa, this is, this is so great and I never knew, uh, you know, I could do something in this field. So what I tell my kids is to figure out what you're good at. Figure out what's fun. And it may be, it, 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 it doesn't have to be the thing that's fun forever. But yeah. the part about it is to be curious about why it's fun. Why is this exciting for you? Why is this something that you're engaged in? So like, if I take my example, my son again, who's interested in video games, he's not actually in, interested so much in the engagement of what the character is doing in the world. It's more that there are a little, you know, I'm going to say this wrong, Mario, because I don't play in this world, but I, you know, I think they're called Easter eggs. These little things that if you're part of the world. No, they're, they're, they're Easter eggs. Even, even I know that, even though okay, I don't play. Okay, well, there yeah. you go. You know, fine. Be that way. All right. <laughs> but yeah, but that's the stuff that these ideas that there's little hidden secrets, hidden pieces to this world that he can find and unveil and those sorts of things. And to him, that's just so then he moves over to his Minecraft games and he builds worlds and he builds Easter eggs in the world. And that's the stuff that turns him on. I'm like, okay, well, so it's not necessarily the video games that matter. It's that experience that's fun. So we talk about that while we're playing. Like what why is this so good? What what are you feeling right now? What's got you turned on? And so hopefully, you know, who knows? Is that what's going to help them down the road? I don't know, but I hope so. Well, so if this, if we're living in a video game, then maybe uh, the the medical education was your Easter egg, right? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah, I love it. But just to make sure, because we, we've been talking about it for a while and we're, we both work in the field. And for us, it's completely natural that this it's this whole big international field and their research groups and their researchers. But... Um, yeah, so actually two questions, because there are, there are many types of education, like there's police education, there's education if you want to be a geologist or something like that. But all these different types of education don't have this big field like medical education. So the so why why is medical education, yeah, does it have like this, this uh, necessity to exist? And just, yeah, could you just explain a little bit 
what it is, what is involved in it, because you're particularly fo focused on the research part as well, not just like teaching, but also research. So why does it require this research as well? Sure. So if we think, so health professions, education, right? Medical, nursing, any health profession, um, but physicians, nursing, social work, OTPT, we have this occupational, sorry, OTPT, occupational therapy, physical therapy, PT. Um, we have this one of the things that this field does is that it takes very seriously the idea that these healthcare providers, these people who take care of patients, literally lay hands on individuals in a therapeutic way to provide healthcare, to in engage and intervene in their lives on a daily basis. And there is a mandate in that space that says you must maintain your competence. And the challenge for a lot of healthcare providers is that when, during the education of undergraduate and graduate training to become a healthcare provider, um, you become quite competent. You gain the, the skills, the knowledge, the attitudes of the profession. But the, the, there's a couple of pieces involved. One is that once you graduate, how do you maintain competence when interventions and pharmaceuticals and um, different kinds of surgeries are forever evolving? So you have this, this mandate to not only work full time to provide patient care, but also stay on top of all of this knowledge that is continually building in healthcare. And so suddenly there's a need to provide some kind of education for these individuals that doesn't stop the day you graduate. And then on the other side, before graduation, there is all kinds of different things happening. If we look before that moment of graduation, there's all these things that happen in the background in order for individuals to become competent clinicians. So for instance, one of the things that's really a great example of why we need this field, the idea of competence. What is what does it mean to be a competent physician? Once upon a time, once upon a time in the back when the earth was young and so was I, to be a competent physician meant to have the ability to diagnose and prescribe. Like that was really the clinical, it was very clinically oriented. It was very um, intervention oriented in, from a, a, a clinical perspective. But today, you know, over time, our society has evolved. Our expectations are have evolved. So now competency is recognized as involving a lot more than just clinical skills. You need to be a communicator. You need to be a patient advocate. You need to be a clinical a manager of, of spaces and finances. You need to be like there's the list goes on and on and on. So all of these aspects then are part of what we now consider competence. And there's there's a need not only to understand what that means to understand how to teach it to someone, to develop those skills, to assess it, to make sure that those skills are learned. And because competence is always evolving, we need to always be asking ourselves, what does, for instance, good communication look like today, right? So once upon a time, healthcare teams, interprofessional healthcare teams were, were part of the, the space, but they weren't recognized as these organizational groups that were important for patient care. It was the physician doing something and these other members working to support that, that physician. That is not a modern conceptualization of healthcare. We know that teams, when they're treated as equals and working collaboratively, that we have better patient outcomes. But then that means I need to train our healthcare providers to work in these teams. I now have to go back and change competence. And now I have to understand, okay, what's team? How does that work? How do I train these people to be like that? So this field of medical education, of health professions education, is all about trying to maintain, well, there's many different pieces, but one of the foundational structures is about maintaining clinical competence 
in the full complexity of what that competence entails. Yeah, and I guess one of the answers that you gave to my question, why, what is, what is specific about education for, for medicine or for health professions, is this idea that because the world is changing so much, and of course you have this in, in many different professions as well, but yeah, you just meant, you, you mentioned the EHR, so technology is uh, evolving. Uh, we have new insights from science all the time that you need yeah. to be able to assess. We have, uh, well, recently there's been a lot of attention to the, the climate impact of, of yes. health professions. And so this is another new thing we need to do. So you just, yeah, you don't just competence, I guess, how you word it. It's not just about, okay, I'm just going to teach you your profession now for once and for all. But actually, you also need to be able to kind of teach yourself for the rest of your life. Um, yeah, reflect right? and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we don't, and and the part that's in, really interesting, and part of the reason there's people like me in this space, is that to be a good healthcare provider, to be an excellent clinician, it's um, it's not a problem just of teaching, right? It's a problem of a, a problem of understanding the phenomenon or the what you know what does that competence look like? Yeah. So, for instance, if I take that electronic health record, the foundational research in that space is about how do we use it. Why do we use it? What happens to the information within that space that creates specific roles for the physician, for the nurse, for the patient, for the learner? How do we then teach people what what is competence? What does it look like to be a competent user of that information? Because a competent user, when I was, if we go back to my PhD example, a competent user wasn't somebody who just sat at the screen and used the information. A competent user made cheat sheets. They made these little workarounds. That's what competence look like. So in order for that work to be, in order for that understanding of competence to exist, people like me who aren't necessarily, at, like I don't have a P, I've got no training in education, no classical training in education. I've learned a lot over the years. Yeah, or in medicine, right? Neither in so medicine. So that, that's yeah. funny, you, you're a medical education professional and you don't have an educational have or medical background? Correct, Yeah. right? I'm completely not belonging here. And yet, because and yet, I take yeah. those right, and because I take those, I take those moments of understanding what it means to be competent really seriously. I can start to say, "All right, now competence isn't using the screen. Competence is manipulating the information for your purposes. What does that look like?" And so there's these trajectories, these careers, this space in in health professions education for people like me to come and look at a situation, and instead of seeing it like, "How can I teach them to be better?" I take one step before that and I say, what does better look like? What, what's actually happening here? Why are we doing this? What is, what's going on? What's the goal? And then I hand it over to somebody and then I'm like, okay, thank you. This is as far as I can take it. Now, if you want to teach somebody to do this, somebody else has to take over because I, I, I'm not an educator, but I do that foundational work of what is it we should be aiming for to begin with. And um how does because we've we've covered education and and uh, medicine yep uh, so how does research come into that right so you know what's fascinating about to me about our field is that um some of the most exciting research that we do isn't really about um test scores right because if you if you think about health professions if you think about education a lot of the work is aimed towards enabling somebody to be better. And we prove that through test scores. We establish that they were successful through yeah. assessment. What, what's the norm? What do we want the doctor to be able to know and do? You make a test and, you know, they practice for it and they get the, they pass the test and they're a good doctor. 
right? Congratulations, Bob's your uncle, you're done. You know, here's your white coat. But um, in, in, in a lot of the spaces in health professions ed, success will never be something we can measure. It's never going to be something we can say, uh, therefore you are a four out of five on this. So something like professionalism, professionalism to be a professional uh, in in a space looks different over context lines looks different in different cultures it looks different over time the 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 professional physician if we just go back in time to the 1950s was a very specific kind of individual and if you brought that individual who was very professional in the 1950s and you dropped them into clinic today mm-hmm. they would absolutely fail completely yeah. and utterly fail and yet they were successful and and respected professionals at the time. They had professionalism, but it changes over time. So for us to be able to say, so you're a four out of five in professionalism, well, it's a moving target. It's contextually bound. Because another thing is that, you know, professionalism in the in the operating room is very different than professionalism in the pediatric outpatient unit, right? It's just a completely different set of of cultural and social and communication needs and expectations. So to to try to assign a number to everything that these clinicians are, need to be proficient at and be competent in, it's it's a failed comp, it's a failed contact. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. You you can't you can't put a number on it. So as soon as you can't put a number on it, now we're starting to ask really different and difficult kinds of questions. Not to say that assessment's not hard. It is hard. It's really hard to make a good assessment, but at least we have a sense of what that does and what we should try to look for. So the research work of a lot of health professions is to try to understand basic questions like, what is it we're aiming to do? What does it look like? What is what is this phenomenon that we're calling important for competence? And then the next question is, how do I we do research on to understand that. Then the next question that we need to do research on is how do I enable people to become skilled in this area of competence? We have a whole set of research questions there. And then the last one is how do we make sure that they're actually meeting levels of competence? Sometimes that looks like assessment, but sometimes that looks has to look really different. So that's another area of research. So in order for us to be successful in preparing these clinicians to lay hands on people, there's all kinds of questions that we need to be asking that are never really answered because they're not stable. Yeah, I don't know so, if I answered your question there. No, yeah, probably more than I asked. I was thinking about, it's a little bit difficult for me to interview you because we know each other. Yeah, right? of course. And yeah. It's, I, that's just something I noticed that, that for me, it's easier to interview people I don't really know because <laughs> it's very easy for us to just kind of have a professional conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, so what if, you, if you're listening to this and you have, maybe this is the first time you realize, oh, there is such a thing as medical education research and it involves yeah. all these things. So, yeah, what I'm thinking is that it can sound like the we've mentioned so many different aspects now. So the world is yeah. changing. There are different things from you have to be able to deal with the electronic health record. Uh, you have to be professional. You have to be able to communicate. But also this looks different for different professions, for the surgeon yes. and for the general practitioner and for all these different ones. So it can sound like there's just like... Uh, you're just going from project to project all the time and and it's just yeah kind of improvisation so i guess my question is is there a kind of an organizing framework because if you would just if you would be an astronomer 
yeah there's a certain kind more of or less way of doing astronomy and and that's it right. and you can you can learn that and then you can do that but right this is a very interdisciplinary field so yes. how do you sometimes you need psychology sometimes you need yeah. communication sometimes you need medical knowledge sometimes you need technical knowledge but i can probably make a very long list so yeah do you have yeah how do you deal with this do you have this kind of organizing framework or I think you have a, it's a really important question or a great question that you ask, um, Mario, in part because, um, well, I love questions I don't have answers to. So there's A, I don't really <laughs> have an answer for you. But I can give you some thoughts and reflections. One is, of course, like the field of medical education is really young. We've been around for less than 100 years, right? Uh, and while that might feel like a long time if you're depending on what stage in life you're at. But um, an academic field, if we look just at the two words that make up medical education, medicine and education have literally been around since the ages of Plato and um, Hippocrates and those guys, right? Like these are ancient fields. And we are just now touching, and just a hundred years now, I've been starting to touch on the surface of what is this work of training professionals to be... Um, proficient clinicians. So the field as a, as, a, as a whole is very young, which means that there aren't really great overarching frameworks for understanding all of it. So the way I've, that doesn't mean I haven't created one that's sort of the back, the back of the envelope that I use informally for myself. Yeah, I guess and, you need one yourself, right? If, uh, yeah. yeah, to make sense of it for yourself. Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things that I I spend, you know, the, my back of the envelope is that I tend to think of med ed as three parts. One is what is it we need to, what do they need to be, what do we need clinicians to be able to do? And what does that look like? Second is how do we get clinicians, how do we train them to be skilled? How do we educate them? And then the third is what kind of assessments do we need or what kind of examinations do we need to engage in to make sure that they are in fact proficient? So um, there's a whole bunch of research on assessment that tends to go in that third bucket. Uh, there's a whole bunch of research on things like, you know, flipped classrooms and um, OSCEs or uh, simulations that tends to sit in the middle bucket of, you know, how do we prepare them for this work? And then there's the work that's very foundational. What are we trying to aim for in the first place? And that's, that's the, that's a space where I tend to play questions of, you know, Everything from what is the experience of having to break bad news to someone to uh, what is the um, what's the function of empathy for a really good physician? These are questions that we're never going to nail down for sure, but uh, they enable us to start working at it and chipping at it. So if I if I live in a world where there's those three buckets, obviously, there's always stuff that doesn't fit in the buckets. And that's fun, too. But those three buckets are kind of how I tend to start to understand what it is I'm looking at and how how all of these articles in the journal, because if you read our, our journal table of contents, it sometimes looks like we have a whole bunch of people who are talking different languages, literally, right? But if I think about it in those terms, you can I can usually get nine out of 10 papers to fit in those buckets. Right. But you're right, uh, it's completely inter interdisciplinary too, right? Like here we are, you know, I've got a PhD in English. We have PhDs in education, and you know what? I've got collaborators who are great friends with PhDs in uh, engineering, or you know, all kinds of disparate fields, psychology, and we all work in this space because it's it's fun, it's attractive, it in the sense that it's uh, very tangible. You can actually do things. You can affect change. 
But if you had gone into the Department of English and looked at my graduating class of graduate students and says and said, does anybody here want to work in medical education? It would have been this face, like before I met Lorelai and Kathy, it would have been this whole space of absolute blank, what on earth are you talking about that has nothing to do with me? And yet it does. Mm. Yeah. yeah, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to, to be able to ask people about their vision on, on growth and development and learning. And I guess I can I can ask you about, you know, what's your insights about what's the best way for medical educators to learn, but it also sounds like you have to do a lot of learning yourself because you're you're always kind of there's there's your expertise, but then in that research you're also working with people who have different expertise or who are medical doctors, which you are not, or who have another um, background that you have not, and, and still you have to be able to teach them or to do the research. If there's a new topic you encounter, you didn't know about it. What's what's your approach? You mean any day that start, ends in the word D-A-Y? It, it happens all the time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> every day. So, because, um, well, there's a couple of pieces in, in, in embodied in there. I think one of the things that enables people like you and I to be successful in this field is there's a never ending curiosity and a love of learning. Like if you and I didn't enjoy learning, it would be a really long life. Like some people are really happy and are you know, excellent scholars and very successful after their PhDs, having learned a body of work and focusing on a narrow scope. And that's great. My husband does that, right? My husband's a rocket scientist. He goes deep. That's great. Good for just him. Just focusing on helping, like many doctors, just focusing on yep. helping as many people as possible. Yeah. Yep. And 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 it's, you know, help do as much as you can in this space, in this, it, with, within this framework, within this box, like you, you work in here. And that's great. But when you work in a field that's so new, and that's so interdisciplinary. Every day I meet people who are like, I have this idea. And they start talking about something I've never heard of before. And now I'm like, oh, okay, I got to figure out whatever this means. So um, one of the people that I've worked with uh, recently, uh, his name is Will Bynum. And he's been interested in looking at, he's just finishing off his PhD, looking at experiences of shame. Mm. Um, Will and I have done that with, um, as his PhD work, we, uh, I've been supervising him along with Pim Tunison, uh, at Maastricht. Can't say enough nice things about Pim. Um, but the three of us have been doing this work, looking at shame. I had never thought about shame experiences in medical education or shame in, in, of, in education. of like the, in general or of patients or of doctors, the physician feeling ashamed of themselves for something. Why, that happened. why would they, why would they feel ashamed? Right. They make mistakes. They don't know ah, okay. the right answer. Yeah. Uh, they don't get picked for something. Um, the the volume of moments where and and it starts. You know, I knew nothing about I knew nothing about shame when he first walked in. Like I've got, I'm like, dude, I got nothing. Yeah, but it's okay because my job is not to become an expert in shame. My job is to help Will become an expert in shame. So I come to my job in that relationship is to come to him with methods, experts, and expertise, and expertise in theory. So that we have theory-informed, well-designed research. He has to go figure out shame and then teach me so that I can play with him in this space. Um, and then I have to make sure I really understand the methods because I have to teach him how to do it. And I really understand the theory because I have to make sure that that's well underpinning the whole design work. So how, how do you approach that? Because you we want to understand the methods and the theory. Do you start just like reading everything you can or do you go to Wikipedia or just very <laughs> practical? How do you? Yeah, no, you for start? sure. 
So the first thing is that when, so when, if, we, if I take the shame example, one of the things that happened is that Will came in and he had this whole, he had this one slide from a PowerPoint presentation. And I kid you not, Mario, it must've had 30 little boxes on it. And each little box was part of his idea of how we would study this. Like each, every little box was a study. And I'm like, oh, dude, we can't start with 30 boxes. Like, what, let's start. Do we know what, do we understand what shame is? Do we understand this? Like, if we understand that, then we can move forward. But if we haven't, have we ever studied physicians, clinicians, their personal experiences of shame in their professional work? And he's like, well, no, there's no work on that. Okay, Kate, okay, that's where we have to start. That's good news, right? If you that, want right, to research that's what, something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, boom, done, great. Yeah. You want me. Because if there was that body of work, I'm like, well, I have to hand you over to somebody who's either the teacher. The, who's expertise, the expert yeah, in that already, yeah. Right, or somebody who can be the expert in assessment to yeah. assess it. But if they, we don't understand the phenomenon, I am your right woman, right? That's that's my world. So then, you know, understanding shame and knowing what that is, I have to have enough. One of the things I need to have is enough savvy across enough research methodologies uh, and qualitative research. I only do qual to know what kind of methodology suits that topic. Just once, just sorry, just to interrupt yeah. you, but just what very basic, what's the difference between qualitative and quantitative research? Of course. So um, qualitative and quantitative research, there's there's a couple of foundational differences. The thing that gets a lot of people tricked out is or tri tripped up, I'm sorry, is that they tend to think that qualitative research is words and quantitative research is numbers. Uh, long story short, yeah, you're right, but you're, but you're completely not right. Quantitative research <laughs> is, <laughs> yes, congratulations, you're right, but no, you're not. Um, the quantitative research tends to work from a, a post-positivist or positivist paradigm. Long story short, just means there's a real reality out there and I can measure it. And good knowledge is objective and generalizable and um, all those sorts of things. It doesn't matter who's, who observes this phenomenon, they would see it the same way. Qualitative research doesn't tend to work from those paradigms. You can, you can use words in those kinds of research questions, but qualitative research research tends to work on another side, another set of paradigms that are interpretive. So uh, social constructionisms, constructivism, um, inter um, critical theory, I'm going to put in there, although they may not want me to. Um, but this idea that we have to interpret reality, that the experience of the thing that we're looking at may not be the same for you and me. So to understand that phenomenon, we have to look at it from many different perspectives. So qualitative research often investigates questions that where there's no single right answer, but we have to figure out the best complexity of it as we can. Whereas quantitative research often works from an orientation where th there is a right answer and we're very slowly marching towards it. Mm -hmm. So then uh, with shame's, with Will's study about shame, Yeah. There was no way there was one right answer about what so, shame looks like. Yeah, that's for me a very uh, interesting point where if, for instance, mm -hmm. let's take a medical topic like uh, how can we cure cancer? Right. There's one right answer, which is you can cure it. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> no you... cells left of that nature in the body. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and how do you become more professional or how what is shame or something like that? There's, I mean, it's important. It's not just you. Yeah, it's you have to do something with it, but it does. Maybe there are different answers to that, and maybe th those answers are equally valuable. Or that, yep. that's it's also it also depends on the nature of the the kind of question you are asking, I guess. So absolutely, yeah. and, and one of the really important things about it, like for instance, is you know part of at some point you have to ask yourself, then is this the right thing to be asking? Is this a good question at all? Doesn't right. matter. 
Well, we but spoke we, before with a scientist already about, yeah, if you have the question, you're already um, at least halfway. Right. So Absolutely. formulating the right question. So what, so yeah, you were speaking about shame and, and yeah, the, you have this uh, array of, of qualitative methodologies that you can draw on. Right. So you have this whole, like, I, I tend to think of it like a buffet table, right? Mm -hmm. I have this buffet table of research methods and methodologies. And the question is, we don't understand the experience of shame that physicians engage, have in their practices. And that's important because one of the things we know is that clinicians have a much higher suicide and depression rate and burnout rate than any other profession. So what are we doing? What's happening? Well, shame is one of those manifestations of that struggle. So which question, which approach is going to help me to understand this thing to really get to the, to the lived, to the nub of it? Well, since it's a very personal internal experience, something like hermeneutic phenomenology is where I'm going to lead, go to on in my buffet table. I'm looking at phenomenology and we're going to go hermeneutic. And so I know that. And knowing as much as I do about all the methodologies, I know because that. Because you want to a, get really into the experience of, right. of the person who's um, experiencing it in this case. Yes, the physician experiencing very, shame. Yeah. yeah, that very personal lived experience. And that very, you know, we want to understand in intimacy that moment that feeling that the catalysts, the contributors, the, you know, what does it feel like? What did it do to you? And that's a very introspective moment. And so we need a, a methodology that enables that, gives us data on that. So then my job with Will is to say, okay, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about hermeneutic phenomenology. I'm also going to teach you enough about all the other ones so that you know why you're not, you didn't pick those, right? That's part of his education. That's my responsibility. The other thing I then we then need to do is go, okay, there are theories of shame from other fields, like psychology studied this. So can we use that theory from psychology to better understand the phenomenon here? So there's a theory by Tracy and Robbins that Will uh, uncovered as he was doing his research about what is shame and what we know about it from other spaces. I read up on that. And that then becomes part of the framework of the, the conceptual framework of the things that we know that we hold in mind when we study, when we create the study design. So my job in this world is to be a methods expert and to be a theory expert and to also be good enough at it to explain it to somebody else who has no methods expertise and probably thinks theory is a dirty word because it's too confusing, right? Like part of my job is to make what is very, very complex, understandable, digestible, and still sufficiently complex. Like I, you don't just distill it down ad nauseum. You, you don't turn it into something that's so simplistic. It's not representative of the, of the true of, of the phenomenon anymore. What we do is we have to explain it in such ways that the complexity of it is understandable. And that's part of my work in this field. Again, I don't know if I actually answered your question because I lost track of it. <laughs> don't worry about that. We're just talking. <laughs> cool. So how does research on shame eventually lead to people becoming better physicians? Oh, that's a great question. I have to give a huge tip of the hat to Will himself on this. Will has such a passion about this topic. He has done so much work outside of just the PhD work of understanding the phenomenon. He has developed websites where he has um, he's, this beautiful video that was professionally pro produced where people tell their stories. One of the things we, we give these seminars and symposia at different conferences, one of the first things to do is to make it normal, is to normalize shame as part of the conversation, to recognize it happens to all of us. Because especially with something like shame, the intention, the first reaction is to hide. 
mm-hmm. is to to not tell anybody about that experience because it's painful. Which it's, is you know, not just from a very yeah, patient perspective. It's not a good idea if, for instance, if you feel ashamed, you made a mistake and you don't want to share it with others. Right. Yeah. So first is to normalize it and to bring it into the light. And then Will has all kinds of workshops that he's developed that he and he <laughs> it's his roadshow. He goes to all these different institutions that have invited him to come and talk about shame, to engage in this workshop, provide strategies for enabling physicians and learners, uh, you know, people learning to be physicians, to talk about it, to address it, to normalize it, to get over it. That that is like, that's all part of this body of work that he's completed. So that now when he's, you know, he hasn't graduated yet, he will in uh, in a few months. He's coming out of this degree as quite frankly, the international expert on shame as it is experienced by healthcare providers, by physicians, I should be more specific, and sp- physicians in training, you know, health you know, in medical education. And he is going around the world, literally around the world before he's finished his PhD, talking to people about this work. If And in, in order to enable everyday clinicians who lay hands on people to be sufficiently competent that when they have when something goes wrong and they have a moment of shame, not only do can they handle it and don't become one of the statistics we never want to see about burnout and or suicide or anything like that for our clinicians, so they can deal with it and that they can meaningfully handle that situation, move forward, harness it for for better purposes, and not feel the need to hide and and carry that burden by themselves. So that that physician then, hopefully, will become a better patient care provider because they have that competence. Right. And before that research, there was not much work done on shame, right, in medical education. and Zero to none. Yeah, yeah. which is another uh, evidence of what you said earlier. It's a very young field. Yeah. So what do you think, what is your vision on what would be a next step for medical education? What should be your next focus to yeah. To for the record, Mario, I hate this question. Uh, not because of any, not because you asked it, but because it feels like a crystal ball moment. It's um the the crystal ball moment of if I read the tea leaves of life, this is one direction I could imagine it going. How about that? It's not the direction, and uh, inevitably something will happen tomorrow to make it completely not appropriate anymore. But you know, if I look at the tea leaves of life, and look at all of the literature that we have right now. I think one of the things that our field is starting to really understand and grapple with is that the context of healthcare provision is fundamentally different than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, God, 10 years ago. We have big data about patients and about our learners and about our clinicians. And the way in which we manage that data, the way in which we analyze that data is going to start to tell us stories about who we are as people, about who we are as professionals, about who our patients are. And that is a real, that's a, a, in, in my heart, I feel that that is one of those vitally important moments in a field where we have to recognize that things are going to change. And if we don't as 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 members of this field, as scholars and participant community members, if we don't get in there and pay really close attention, people can be making decisions about who we are as people, about how we work in, in this profession without our input, and that will have a real impact on the future of our professions, of our healthcare providers and of our field. So for instance, you know, 
one of the things that uh, always makes me smile, if I just echo back to my PhD research, um, the electronic health records in the early days were designed by engineers. They were not designed by clinicians, right? They might have a small group of, of pilot clinicians who would provide some insight, but it was designed the way an engineer thinks, which is why the clinicians made these cheat sheets, because they weren't designed to support the way the clinicians think. And so they had to change. But the same thing could happen with big data. Some engineer, some mathematician, scholar, with the best of intentions, I have every, I, I truly believe that, will go in there and try to help. But if they're not versed in our field, then they're going to work from their ways of thinking. And those ways of thinking will then come to us as, and here's what our big data tells us about you. Yeah. And then suddenly we're fighting against a narrative we didn't even build. You know, or accepting a narrative that somebody else built that may or may not really align with who we are and what we want to do. Hmm. So I think one of the things we need to be paying attention to is how the context of care is changing. Telehealth with COVID, you know, I am now seeing uh, my physician three times in the past three years or four times, whatever, and never once in person because it's all been telehealth. But now this is a new dynamic for our, for the healthcare provider and for the patient. How are we going to manage this? What is the kind of relationship we want to have online? We put patients, quote unquote, in waiting rooms online. Well, that's a very physical way of creating a space in a virtual context, right? We are borrowing metaphors and spaces, ways of thinking, and just putting them online. That's not going to last like that. That's that It's going to change because the technology will enable us to do different things. But if we're not part of that conversation, then somebody else is going to be making decisions about how we should be managing patients online. And then the physicians, the nurses, the social workers, the OTs, the PTs, they're going to be the ones having to deal with the the, the ramifications, the impact of those decisions that they didn't make. So one of the things I think we really need to be taking very seriously as we move forward is not necessarily how the profession is changing, but how the context around us is changing and making sure we are part of that conversation so that we evolve, the professions, the health professions evolve in line with that new future and that the new future, the people who are helping to develop it don't make decisions without us that we then have to manage. And doesn't that conflict with this idea that a, a researcher should be try to be value neutral or an educator even should be value neutral? Why do, do we think, have to be value neutral? Well, uh, there is the idea that that as a researcher, you're trying to be objective. You're trying to mm. not take any sides. You're um, just looking at the evidence. You're doing your research and then you, uh, or not even you, but your kind of your methodology or your study tells you what is the best way to go. What is the best right. way to deal with big data or with shame or with yeah. whatever uh so mario here i have to ha thank you for teeing me up for my one of my favorite rants like this is like <laughs> hold on i got a soapbox right here <laughs> watch me climb on it because one of the things that i truly believe about research is that some questions we need to be objective about uh, what's the best way of suturing a wound well, you know, it depends on skin type depends on the kinds of needle the kind of thread you use uh, or staples or glue there's a right answer to that. There are ways that we can improve the, the pace at which it heals that wound, the infection rates. There's a right answer. But when it comes to, for instance, having to think about the way 
big data creates narratives of who we are as healthcare providers, um, there's no right answer there. There's no single objective truth. Instead, we're going to put data together in clusters in different ways. And those different ways will end, will generate different therefore statements. You know, um, statistics is a fantastic there, thing. Therefore statement is like you do your study and you say, therefore, now we should do this or we should Correct. look into that. Yeah. Therefore, this is true. Therefore, this is right. Yeah. Um, in in big data, I don't think we're ever, you know, it's one of those spaces where we will have a lot of, of quantitative numeric data coming in from all sorts of different sources. And depending on which pieces of data we put against which other pieces of data, we'll start to generate therefore statements of, therefore, when you see this, you do X. Or when you see Y, you do X. Well, I could take different pieces of data, put them together and come up with a different therefore statement. So for me, the, this is not a place where we want to try to find an objective truth because that is an, a goal that is simply unattainable. You cannot generate an objective truth. Instead, what we need to do is understand that we are making choices and choices have impact. They have ramifications. And the question is, what is not about, uh, is there a right ramification? Is there a right output? The question is, what are the values we are putting in to build these questions? What are the values and, and objectives that we care about that have to frame the things that we want to understand? And then when, when we put those pieces of data together and an, and an answer of some sort comes out, we are part of that generation. It didn't just manifest itself. We created that information, that therefore statement because of where we started at the front end. So for me, this kind of work can't be objective. This kind of work, objectivity in this space is is a it's a false hope. It's a it's a vestige. It's it's leftover from, for instance, a medical orientation where there's a right way to fix a broken arm. There's no right way to create a big data dashboard to tell uh, learners how they're doing. Instead, there are multiple ways of doing it. Each of them will create different kinds of information presentations for the learner that they then have to interpret and what it means for them. There's a lot of space of subjectivity in there. We have to recognize it, embrace it, and then try to harness it for our purposes. I don't mm -hmm. think you can be objective in our world. I just don't know. It's, it's Some just things, yes. Always so interesting to me that... Um, you know, we started very concretely about uh, electronic health records and everything in medical education. And suddenly we're talking about reality. And is there one reality? Can you be objective? And is that is that just something that you're personally interested in? Or is it something that you think, yeah, sh should be more addressed in research? And do do everything? does everybody need to know about philosophy or is is it enough for just like maybe like the plato the philosopher kings uh, to know about yeah, that and yeah yeah so i minored in philosophy when i was doing my phd my graduate training so i, I minored in philosophy because i find this stuff fascinating i love it but i think more importantly in if i if i take this to the work i do today in medical education when you work in a really interdisciplinary field what happens is that you have people who believe in objectivity working side by side with people who work in, who believe in subjectivity. You have people who are post-positivists. Oh, I've worked with positivists. There is a right answer. Like it is there and I have discovered it, period, done, right? 
And positivism is just like the world. Uh, the answers are out there in the world, and we just need the right ways to kind of unearth them. Yeah, and yeah. And, and once you have it, it's done. It's you're finished. Draw That's a line it. Yeah, you you have done. it's black or white. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas at least post positivism, one of the one of the jokes I think is funny that I teach to my graduate students is that post-positivism is a less arrogant positivism. Is this mm -hmm. understanding? There's a right answer out there, but I'm just yeah. never going to get there. We might not find a, it. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a better ruler coming out. There's a better tool to, you know, you're just never going to get there. Yeah. But um, when you work in a really interdisciplinary field like ours, then if you don't understand why you are disagreeing about what you're seeing, then your research will very quickly become extremely stunted. Or the work that I'm trying to do, I, you know, very early in my career, I found myself trying to justify and explain my work in quantitative research terms. So people would ask me, well, how many participants need to say something in order for that theme to be real? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, that is so not how this works. But I was working in a post-positivist space that had not started to understand really that qualitative, constructivist, interpretivist way of thinking. And so one of the things I very quickly learned in my career, um, well, maybe not quickly enough, I probably could have saved myself some pain, but if I'd figured it out earlier, but the, the point is that I recognized that I needed to teach people about the philosophies of science because they were fundamentally coming at my studies in the wrong direction. I get, was getting papers rejected because I was interpreting phenomenology data. Yeah. about very personal experiences and they're like well is it true or is it not true so like the shame experience that's where you used phenomenology because you want to uh yeah what is it like for you to experience that and right so as opposed to if you would do it from a positive perspective there would be like an emotion inside of you and we just f have to find the right tools to kind of right? measure that emotion measure of shame. That. yeah Yes. Or one of the first studies that when we were first talking about his research, one of the first studies somebody had suggested to him was, you know, well, what we could do is we create a, a survey and have people put on a Likert scale how ashamed they were. Yeah. And I'm like, in compared to what? My shame of a five might be your shame of a two. Like we, this, this, this is, there is no, there is no objective measure to this. Mm -hmm. It's, you physically can't do that. It makes no sense. But the, in the field, there's this very strong scientific tradition of post-positivism. And so the person who suggested to put it on a Likert scale was actually working from a very logical orientation. That made a lot of sense because that's so the way the way of field thinking worked. about if you have a question, how do you answer it scientifically? Yeah, yeah. Right. And so one of the things I realized I needed to do in this field, if if I really wanted this kind of if I really wanted to care about interdisciplinary based research and to have all of it valued, I needed to teach our field about the philosophies of science. I needed to teach the world, uh, our field about the value of subjectivity and also how to evaluate research on that yeah. side of the house. And so that's one of the things, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be acknowledged in some different spaces for the work I do. And I, if I look back on my career, I, sometimes I think there's nothing that spectacular about it. But what I do think is that I learned early on. And one of the things I've really worked hard on is to get that the philosophy of science as part of our norm. So in our podcast, I give out a, we review papers in medical yeah, the education. The Key Lime podcast, I will link it in yeah. the description. Yeah. Thanks. There might be a new link soon. <laughs> um, 
But uh, we re we review papers. And one of the things that I had to start doing with my fellow podcast hosts was say, I'm going to start giving out a bonus mark because we gave we give these fictional numbers to the papers. I make a whole big deal out of the fact that it's a ridiculous thing to do because it is, but whatever, they want to do it, fine, we'll do it. But I give out random bonus points now just to mess up with their system, just to demonstrate how broken this little five point system, like this is ridiculous. But anyway, I hand out bonus marks. And one of the bonus marks I hand out in, in the method section is if they tell me their paradigmatic orientation, because when I know your paradigmatic orientation, then I know what rigor will look like. I will. I have a sense of what you're aiming yeah. for. A paradigmatic orientation is like, uh, did you do this study from a positive perspective or a phenomenology or, well, there's a lot. Cons we're, we're going to do a whole yeah. episode on philosophy of science oh. later, so we don't need to get into it, but it's really good to understand, yeah, why, because it, if there's anything practical, it's medicine. Yeah. <laughs> you want yeah. to help people, you want <laughs> yeah. to cure diseases. Yeah. So why do you need philosophy in such a practical yeah. field and yeah because if i don't know your philosophy if i don't know your paradigm if i don't know how you're coming to the question itself yeah. i can't evaluate when you're doing good science one of the things mario i take incredibly serious seriously in our field is that we need to defend the knowledge base we need to defend the quality of the knowledge the body of knowledge in our literature because it's you know in fields like healthcare medical education medicine very practical fields. We make, I don't want to overestimate it, but we make legit choices of based on that literature of who's going to be a doctor and who's not. This person is competent to touch you and to intervene in your life. This person yeah. is competent enough to to be a surgeon, cut you open and take out your appendix. Yeah, so those, those assessments, uh, they're very, very real if you're doing medical education. Right? There's a lot of research that goes into it. And so if we enable research in that body of literature to get in that isn't rigorous, then that can have real impact down the road on the patient on the, on the operating table. And so I take it very seriously that we need to defend that body of knowledge. And so when somebody comes and does bad qual, but it looks good to a positivist or post-positivist, somebody in the review body who says, oh, well, look, they had X number of pages of, of data and the Y number of participants. And I know the theme was quote unquote saturated because, you know, 80% of the participants said so. If you're trying to be doing a constructivist study, everything you just said demonstrates to me, you, you don't, you're not doing good science. You don't know what you're doing. I can't let that get in there. If I let that get into our base, our body of knowledge, then that can taint the decisions we make about who's competent. And then that can touch the person on that operating table because I said, because that knowledge piece had impact about who got in. So for me, we must know what paradigm you're working from. So I know what rigor looks like. So I can assess what it is that you're, that you're putting into this research so that the content of knowledge in the, in the, in the knowledge base is high quality. I don't care if you disagree with everybody. That's fine. I don't care if you're putting out a brand new idea. That's crazy. I don't, that's fine if it's good science. If it if it's rigorous according to the def definition of rigor for your paradigm, so to me, fill of sci is everywhere. It's it's fundamental. If you don't know your philosophy of science, you you don't know what rigor is, or you you might know it for your little corner of the world, but we're an interdisciplinary field. You're going to work with every corner of the world, so you have to be savvy. So, how do you read Plato's allegory of the cave? You know, Mario. Um, 
I read Plato's Allegory of the Cave for the first time when I was studying for my PhD thesis, my PhD qualifying exams, my, we call them uh, comprehensive exams. You have to know enough about everything. Um, and so that was part of my, my PhD exam. And I can tell you the way I thought about it then is very different from the way I think about it now. Hmm. So I'm just going to tell you about the way I think about it now, because the way I think about it, then I, I was, I, I'm one of those pack rats. I still have my notes from yeah. that PhD. I looked at those and we're just not going to talk about what I thought was right back then. But that <laughs> just before, even before you tell your interpretation, that's an interesting <laughs> observation, right? Because let's say uh, from a positive perspective, there would be Plato's allegory of the cave and there would be one right interpretation and you would have learned it in your PhD and that's it. And it would hold forever. And yep. it would hold forever. But even, yeah, if I'm doing, as I'm doing this podcast, it continually evolves and you start to have different understandings, different views. Maybe your understanding now, if you look back at that in 20 years, it will be, you know, different again, right? Absolutely. So for one of the things that, in my personal body of research and the stuff that I'm doing, not with my learners, but just me, um, I'm taking more and more, I find myself learning and caring more and more about ideology and the way the norms, the values, the expectations that are part of our field are really doing something to us. And they, they set expectations. They set all kinds of ways of thinking that become very hard to break because we assume they're normal. And so when I, reread Plato's Allegory of the Cave in, in preparation for our conversation today, I found myself thinking about it in terms of ideology. Because for me, that idea of sitting and looking at the shadows on the cave wall, I find in so many ways, I feel that that, I don't want this to sound wrong, so I'm going to try to phrase it carefully. Um, so many of us accept what we see as real as necessary, as normal, as re as fact, where in actual essence, those are shadows. And in my mind, that means, you know, what are those shadows? Those are, they're the, the, they are the decisions, the remnants of decisions that we made long ago about what we would do in our field, about how things would work, about, <laughs> you know, we drive on this side of the street. It's just a decision we made once upon a time with the best data we had at the time and with the best of intentions. And, you know, we wanted to encourage people to live their best life and we wanted to avoid our deepest fears, but we have accepted them as normal. And so we are stuck looking at those shadows on the wall at, at the world that we live in, in the, the things that we do in my world and in, in medical education, we're stuck looking at that and thinking that that, is normal it's real it's done now the thing is when you leave the cave and you see the outside world then you, the the idea then is of course what well, there's that's not real this is real yeah. and my thing is is that well you're probably just seeing a different reality you're seeing another reality and if you wear a different pair of glasses you're going to see a different reality if you have a different set of experiences you'll see a different reality that there is no experience that is so pure and objective and true that we all see it the same way. I tend to think of, um, if I think about Plato's allegory of the cave and we're all looking at that wall and then we go outside, what I tend to think of is that we didn't actually leave a cave. We just put on, we, we were all wearing glasses. We're all wearing glasses and those glasses, the lenses, the prescription in there is shaped by our education, by the kind of family we grew up in, by the kinds of life experiences we've had, by our health, by our, you know, the fact that I just got a, puppy and she's lovely but man does a lot of work right 
when I'm when I go into any experience, I have all of those lenses in my prescription. I'm looking at the world through those through that orientation. And then what I need to remember is that my prescription can change. I don't need to accept any of it as therefore this is true. Instead, all of it is malleable. I can get a different education and that will change my prescription, my the prescription of my glasses. Like taking the dog out, I used to just go for walks with my husband at night. And now we talk about our neighborhood in fundamentally different ways. Like this is oh, this is her this is where she does her business. You're gonna speak. get a whole so new social circle just by having a dog. Right. And and my sense of geography has changed. This is not a long enough walk. She needs more out. It used to be long, it used to be a long walk for us, but now it's a short one. Right. All of that what I'm saying is that there I don't I think we are all looking at cave walls. But instead of framing it that way, I'm just going to say we're all wearing glasses. And those glasses have have shaped the way we see things. And when we move out of the cave, when we move to a different place, we have to, what I would love for us to do, if I could have any sort of use this, this allegory of the cave, I would love for that cave moment, that the moment at the mouth of the cave when you walk out, it's not that you're seeing reality, but maybe in that moment you recognize you're wearing glasses. And maybe in that moment you say, okay, do I want to wear these? Is there another kind of orientation I want to adopt? Is like For me, that's the moment of agency. That's when you have power. When you as a human being, as a single solitary person can say, everybody outside the cave is looking at it this way, but me, I want to look at it a little bit differently. To me, that moment at the mouth of the cave is one of the most important moments we have because that's when we see ideology. That's when we see the things we assume to be normal in a new light. And before we decide that this other thing is the new normal, is the new correct answer, that indecision moment, that that disruption moment, that's the one that's important in my mind. I like how you're bringing this factor of time here that, um, you know, there's the fire and the things that carried in front of it and the shadows, but then the shadows, how you phrase it, are actually uh, an effect of something that happened in the past long time ago. Some of them are, some of our traditions, <laughs> some of the things that we do, for instance, in medicine are things that we decided legitimately, literally hundreds of years ago. And we just never revisited. Mm -hmm. Like what on earth did we decide a hundred years ago is still relevant and practical in our world now? Like, come on, there's, it's, if nothing else, it needs to modify, it needs to evolve to suit a new context. So it, in in my mind, there's time's a really important piece of this because it, it time is one of those pieces that if we look at our reality across time, we can at least start to see the ways in which we have changed our thinking and our ways of seeing what's normal. And as soon as you see that normal fact, truth is different over time, it's now malleable, it's not forever, I can change it. Do you think it's possible to take off the glasses or is that only temporary? No, in my mind, you're for, you're forever looking at glass. You're all, you're forever looking at the world through a set, a set of lenses. Yeah. You're forever. But you can, you can change, you can change lenses. So to yeah. Speak. Yeah. Yeah. And in that moment when you're taking them off and changing them or experience it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had that experience. I'm sure your listeners have too, where it's really uncomfortable, where you don't know what you're doing and you yeah. have no idea what's happening. And it's, it's, <laughs> you know, I'm sure some people revel in that. I'm the kind of person who's like, oh, you know, now the fits hit the shan because I've got no clue what's happening. But that's actually a really 
that's a moment of, you know, you have a lot of power in that moment. That could be really, you know, if you can harness that and see the comfort in the discomfort, mm -hmm. that's, that's a good thing. Hmm. So last question, because you've been doing a lot of teaching and research for medical people. Mm -hmm. Is there some advice or, or some insight that you think is applicable for everybody, even if you're not in medicine? I can give you a couple of things. One is that um, I would love to encourage people to embrace the idea of being a lifelong learner. Hmm. Um, every time I open up one of my methodology books, um, to to revisit stuff that I know, right? Like this, these, I know my methodologies. I, I've read this stuff a hundred times and it never fails. A new book comes out or I read a paragraph again and I have a better understanding or a different understanding than I did before. And so this idea of forever asking yourself questions to me is, it's the, one of the greatest gifts if you're a researcher that you can have, but I think it's also one of the greatest gifts we can have as people because it means you embrace the idea that what you know is for now and not forever, that you're going to know something different if you open your mind and read a new book or read a new paragraph or read something you've read before with a new perspective. You, you If you can always keep growing in those ways, then then life is a continual adventure, not a continual moment of, uncomfort, of discomfort. Um, another thing that, you know... Oh, this is going to sound trite, but I'm going to say it. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've really come to sort of understand uh, with people that I've been working with over the years is that um, we earn everything we get, right? So you, some people have a lot of hard road to cover to get to the same opportunities as others and those sorts of things. But that need to earn a position in a field to earn the right to say, I understand this, that takes work to say that I've earned the right to say, I understand this phenomenon. This is how I see it. This is how I can explain it to you. Let's talk. That's a position that, you know, there's a lot of work that goes in there and, and you can't shy away from that work. You need to embrace it. Uh, but I also think that you earn the right you earn the relationships that you have with others. So if I've had success with uh, collaborators, if I've had success with mentees, anything like that, um, I think one of the things that's important there is that I have spent a lot of time and energy investing in, in, in the relationship. So I feel it's really important for us as people to recognize that just as you earn the right to make statements, as you earn the right for respect and to be listened to, you also earn relationships. And if you don't treat people well, if you, if you're not engaging in that candid, open, best intention way, people know it and your relationships reflect it. In my world, the most important thing is people. Every, every day uh, with my family, with my friends, with my collaborators, I care more about the people than I do the product. I just do. Um, maybe that's because I've, I've done enough product over the years that I can afford to do that. Sure. But at the same time, the products came into being and are good because I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy spending time with them and I want them to be successful. And so I'll put in work, I'll earn their relationship. I'll earn their trust. Yeah. People's everything. Nothing else. matters. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure, Mario. Thanks for having me on your podcast. This has been fun. 
Do you have the feeling it's nighttime now because you always do podca <laughs> your podcast at night? <laughs> you know what? I do a little bit because my dog needs to go out and I'm like, ah, all okay. right. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's the end of the day. <laughs> Thanks for having me, though, Mario. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thanks a bunch. Thank you for listening. In the next episode with Rani Liu Anju, we will dive deeper into the philosophy of science. And also coming up are Jean Proust on Henry Bergson and Lee McIntyre on how to talk to a science denier. This is an independent educational podcast. If you want to support my work, you could consider subscribing on Patreon and sharing this episode with others. Go to livefromplatoscape.com for ways to do this. <laughs>